This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. When Onikola Bennett started her anthropology field research in 1997, she didn't go to the Amazon rainforest or to a teeming Asian city or to a remote island somewhere. She went to Brooklyn. Specifically, she went to Flatbush and Crown Heights, the neighborhoods that house the largest population of West Indian immigrants in the United States. In those neighborhoods, LeBennett got to know about 35 West Indian teenage girls, and she started looking at the stuff they consumed. Not food, but culture, music, TV, and so on. And she looked at how these girls used consumer culture to express their own identities, as West Indian, as American, and as racially black. Today, LeBennett is one of the research directors of Fordham's Bronx African American History Project and an assistant professor of African and African American Studies at Fordham. Her field research has moved uptown a little bit these days. She's heading up a hip-hop research initiative that centers on the Bronx. But she joins me this week in the studio to talk about the girls she got to know in Brooklyn. Onika LeBennett, welcome. Thank you. So you have been going down to Flatbush and Crown Heights on and off for like the last 11 years. Tell me about your time hanging out with these girls. Well, I started this research in 1997, and I began with a group of cheerleaders at the Flatbush YMCA in the Flatbush section of Brooklyn. Uh, they were there cheering the Wise basketball team, and I would sit in on their practices because I was interested in how West Indian immigrant girls, that's girls from the English-speaking Caribbean, engage with American and Caribbean popular culture. So watching the cheerleading practice was a great way to do this. They were often designing or choreographing cheers to popular songs. So I got to see them engaging with popular music on a regular basis. And it was really an incredible experience. I worked with about 30 girls at the YMCA, and then I started another field site at the Brooklyn Children's Museum, where there was an after-school program uh, for teenagers. Describe to me who these girls are. Uh, the girls are first and second generation immigrants from the English-speaking Caribbean, places like Jamaica, Trinidad, Barbados, Guyana. Some of them were born there. Others uh, immigrated um, relatively recently. They attend mostly um, public schools in Brooklyn throughout the borough, mostly uh, majority minority schools, or minorities are the majority in these schools. The girls come from primarily working class backgrounds. And I found two different sort of sets of teenagers. The teens who frequented the YMCA program were the sort of teens who their parents wanted to know what they were doing, but they didn't necessarily want to go to a place like a museum after school. So they got to do things that teenagers like to do, active things uh, like cheerlead and, and watch um, the boys' basketball team at the YMCA. The teens at the Brooklyn Children's Museum were teens whose parents wanted them to do something, quote unquote, educational after school. So although they were from similar class backgrounds as the other teens, these parents wanted their kids to be doing something that was sort of intellectually challenging. I found, interestingly, about both groups of teens that they also were incredibly hardworking. Uh, these were adolescents who, um, at the Brooklyn Children's Museum, were paid for the, their internship there. But many of them had other jobs. So they would have two after-school jobs and, in a few cases, even three jobs. These were teens who were concerned about saving money for college, about helping their families buy food and school supplies. So it was remarkable to see how um, hardworking they were and how they were really they had responsibilities that you often would think of only a, of an adult as having. Uh, there was one girl I worked with at the Brooklyn Children's Museum who told me that she had her job at the at the museum, 
also worked as a cashier in a department store and was looking for a third job because she wanted health insurance. Incredible for a 17-year-old to be thinking about that. Yeah. Um, Well, tell me what you were trying to find out when you started looking at these girls. I was trying to find out how they use American and West Indian popular culture informing their gender and ethnic identities. There's been a whole lot of literature written about West Indian immigrants uh, in Brooklyn, but most of it is focused on adults, and most of it is focused on work and on school. So even when youth are the focus, uh, there have been many studies of how West Indian adolescents formulate their identities within the school setting. I thought that it would be interesting to look at the same questions about identity formation, ethnicity, and uh, racial alliances, whether they identify with African Americans or whether they maintain a separate West Indian identity. I thought that those questions could be addressed much more interestingly from my perspective and perhaps even from the teens by looking at them in sort of the leisure setting and looking at their consumer culture. So I was looking to fill a void in the literature that tends to focus on adults and tends to focus on school and labor rather than leisure and consumption. You said there was a lot of writing about West Indians in Brooklyn. That seems like a very, very specific area. Why is it such a fertile field for study? There are over 900,000 immigrants from the English-speaking Caribbean uh, in New York City. Most of the West Indian immigrants who come to the United States come to New York City. And out of those, most go to Brooklyn, some go to Queens. Anthropologists for a long time, and sociologists, have looked at how immigrant groups, quote-unquote, assimilate into American society. And for a long time, the literature was about immigrants who came here at the turn of the century, Irish-Americans, Italian-Americans. However, in the post-1965 era, there was an increasing number of immigrants from places like Guyana, Trinidad, Barbados, Jamaica. So sociologists and anthropologists started looking at these immigrant groups and asking some of the same questions they asked about the earlier immigrant groups. What's interesting about this group as opposed to that earlier group is these groups are racially black. So the question became, will these racially black immigrants come to eventually identify with African Americans and sort of lose their separate ethnic identity? So your research on these teenage girls focused, as you said, on consumption, on, you know, what these girls wore, what they watched on TV, the music they listened to. Why did you focus on that? And what were they into? Okay. I focused on that, frankly, because I was looking for a subject that they would be willing to talk about. And I already had an interest in consumer culture and in popular culture. And my hunch was that if you asked a teenager a question about how they think of themselves in terms of their ethnic or their gender identity formation, they would probably shut down and not want to talk to you. But if you asked them who their favorite hip-hop star was or what TV shows they watch, they'd probably be very willing to talk to you. And that's exactly what I found. This was a topic that they wanted to talk about. It was something that they were used to adults assuming they knew the meaning of. In other words, they had parents and educators saying, too much television is bad for you. There are um, corrupt images of young women in popular media representations. The types of choices offered for girls and boys in hip-hop music is um, detrimental to sort of their identity formation. These are the sort of things that they were used to. And here I was, an adult who thought that Perhaps they had something to say that the adults didn't already know. Perhaps the ways in which they thought about those things was a little bit more um, 
complex. And my feeling was that they were just as savvy as adults in being critical of the sorts of choices offered to them in popular music and in television shows. And so I asked them probing questions about those things. What sorts of probing questions? Okay. Uh, When I began this field work uh, in 1997, the show that was the most popular amongst my informants was a show called Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And so I was really curious about why a group of mostly black girls from the English-speaking Caribbean were identifying with a show whose protagonist was a blonde-haired, blue-eyed, white teenager. So I asked them what it was about Buffy that they found to be compelling, why this was one of their favorite shows, and what did they like about that character. Interestingly, they said that they identified with the fact that Buffy was a teenager by day and a vampire slayer at night. She was uh, living a dual life, right? She had a dual identity. First of all, I'm a vampire slayer. And secondly, I'm retired. Hey, I know. Why don't you kill him? I'm a watcher. I, I haven't the skill. Oh, come on. Stake through the heart, a little sunlight. It's like falling off a log. A slayer slays. A watcher... Watches? Yes. No. He... he trains her. He, 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 he prepares her. Prepares me for what? For getting kicked out of school? For losing all of my friends? For having to spend all of my time fighting for my life and never getting to tell anyone because I might endanger them? Go ahead. Prepare me. That was something that they could um, relate to because as West Indian teenagers, they had their sort of West Indian identity at home. And when they went to school, they were often mistaken for African-Americans. So they had this dual identity. They were negotiating, uh, on the one hand, a sort of West Indian ethnicity where their parents were very strict Girls weren't allowed to have boyfriends or wear makeup, and their African-American peers were enjoying all sorts of privileges that they didn't have. Then at school, they were confronted with uh, all sorts of norms that were foreign to them. So they related to the fact that Buffy had this dual identity. So those are the kinds of questions I was asking them. In the more recent research, I started looking at topics like popular music. Uh, Who were their favorite musical artists? Uh, Who were they listening to? And I found that they use music as a way of asserting either a separate West Indian identity or forming alliances with their African-American peers. So for example, if they wanted to assert a separate West Indian identity, they would talk about obscure musical artists that are not mainstream in American music, like Spraga Benz, or um, perhaps a little bit more popular in the U.S., Beanie Man. Uh, These are West Indian dance hall artists who they listen to, and they would download these artists' music. And this was a way of sort of asserting a separate identity. However, when they wanted to show that they were fluent in American popular culture and that they knew all of the same songs as their African-American peers, they would talk about artists like... Jay-Z, Beyonce Knowles, Mary J. Blige, all of the artists that their African-American peers listen to, they listen to as well. So they found commonality along these lines of uh, musical artists. You are listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. My guest on the show today is anthropologist Onika LeBennett, and we're talking about teen girls and consumer culture, specifically West Indian girls in Brooklyn, and how they look at pop music, TV, and at their own identities. Let's get back to that conversation. So they have sort of three identity groups. It seems like that they could be American, they could be African American, and they can be West Indian. Definitely. Do these girls have more on their plates than, you know, say I did when I was a kid? 
<laughs> That's a good question. Um, I think they they have a lot on their plates, but what I found was those three identities that you just outlined, American, African-American, or West Indian, were identities that they negotiated rather effortlessly, and they were able to sort of fluidly maneuver between one or the other and sometimes simultaneously adopt both. So it wasn't this either-or choice where they would be either African-American or West Indian, but they could assert both simultaneously. And these were complex maneuvers, but I found that they were rather effortless. So in what situations would people sort of work different identities? Mm -hmm. That's also a good question. Um, One of the things that West Indian teenagers learn very quickly when they come to New York City is that there are all sorts of stereotypes of African-American teenagers that teachers and employers hold. And they found that by asserting a separate West Indian identity, they were able to um, avoid being sort of lumped in the same sort of negative stereotypes of African-Americans. And some of those stereotypes are African-American teenagers are negative stereotyped as not doing well in school, as being unwilling to work. Now, these are stereotypes that I think are untrue. And I found that they were untrue also with African-American teens with whom I worked, who were alongside the West Indians in in both of these field sites. But for my West Indian um, informants, they knew that if they, for example, spoke in a West Indian accent, then they would not be mistaken for an African-American, and they might have a better shot at being hired for a job. It's unfortunate, but it was something that they knew was true. So even though they could lose their accent conveniently when they wanted to, they also knew when it would be advantageous to speak in a West Indian accent. Uh, And they did the same thing with um, the clothing they wore or with a sticker they would put on their notebook, perhaps a flag of the country in which they were born, to show that they were not African-American, but that they were West Indian. Now, the times when it becomes advantageous to be African-American are the times when they want to gain the support of their peers or when they want to ally themselves with the struggles that African-Americans face. So when incidences happen in Flatbush, um, like the very famous uh, police brutality cases that happened while I was in the field, uh, a Haitian immigrant, Abner Louima, was brutally beaten by the police. That was a time when the teenagers wanted to show their alliance with sort of a pan-African diaspora identity, right? This is someone who looks just like us, and we want to show our support for for him. Another time that I thought was very interesting was during the transit worker strike. This is when I was doing my follow-up field work. I found that the teenagers at the museum were looking up to Roger Toussaint, the president of the Transit Workers Union. And they saw the transit worker strike as this class and race-based struggle over claiming New York City. And they felt that Toussaint was able to literally claim the streets. He halted everything in New York City during that busy holiday shopping season. And he sh- he demonstrated that a person with a West Indian accent was highly influential and very powerful. That was someone who they wanted to show their alliance with. What you look at, um, again, is consumer choices that people make. How do people reflect those identities that you just described in the choices that they make and the things they wear, the things they watch? In terms of uh, the example of the transit workers, soon after the transit worker strike, the educators at the Brooklyn Children's Museum 
asked the teens to design Mardi Gras floats for a celebration they were having at the Y, at, at the museum rather. And the teens were given themes around which they could design their floats. The seniors were given music as their theme and the juniors were given transportation. The juniors decided that their transportation float would be all about the transit worker strike. So they designed costumes where they pasted hundreds of uh, used metro cards literally on their person. So they embodied the transit system and they were the transit workers union. Interestingly enough, they decided to strike at the last minute and didn't show up for the Mardi Gras um, celebration. So they, to the last minute, did everything that the transit, what they felt the transit workers would do. Uh, So that's one example. Another way in which they sort of demonstrate these sort of ethnic and racial alliances through their consumer culture is by the music they listen to. They are very acutely aware of the political views that the artists who they listen to hold. So, for example, an artist like Kanye West, a hip-hop star, who um, soon after Hurricane Katrina in 2005, on a nationally televised telethon, he said, George Bush doesn't care about black people. My informants found that to be a moment in which hip-hop was politicized. So by listening to Kanye West, they were listening to an artist who was holding a political view that was critical of the current administration. In that way, consumer culture and politics are inseparable. I wonder for people who have sort of more complicated identities, if this stuff is more important than it is for other teenagers or if all teenagers are just constantly working to show who they are through their consumer choices? I think that it's the latter. You know, my research on uh, youth culture and consumption is not only focused around uh, field work and, and writing articles, but it's also focused around my teaching. In the past, I've taught a course called Youth Culture and Consumption that looks at how youth um, cross-culturally engage with consumer culture. Anything from white adolescence in the United States in the 1950s to post-war British youth, all of these youth groups, um, whether they're uh, African-American, Irish-American, British, all of these groups have used consumer culture to stake claims to identities that rebelled against their parents' generation. Uh, Today, 70% of all hip-hop CDs are purchased by white youth. Why? Uh, When I asked students in my classes here at Fordham and at Holy Cross, where I taught before, my students all said, well, that's because our parents don't want us listening to that. So this is something that teenagers are aware of, and these are identities that they negotiate, that all teenagers negotiate. Why is consumer culture a good way to look at teen identities in particular? Part of that, the answer to that question is historical. Teenager the term teenager actually came into being or was popularized in the 1950s when that age group was being marketed to for the first time. So it coincided with a marketing drive to sell music, food, clothing to a new age group. The idea of a teenager as opposed to an adolescent had never been a popular term before. So teenagers from the very beginning have been defined by consumer culture. Uh, The music they listen to, the food they eat, the clothing they wear, these are some of the ways in which we can identify teenagers. So for me, it's really the obvious way to study teen identity. It seems also that that would be an area where teens had way more choice than they did in a lot of other areas. 
Definitely. Um, and, and that's the other thing that happened when they were first marketed to in the 1950s is it was the first time when teens had spending money. In previous eras, young people didn't have money to spend unless you came from a very wealthy fa- family. The idea that a teenager would be able to buy their own music, clothing, uh, or food was unheard of. But after um, the sort of economic success that the country uh, experienced after the Second World War, teenagers had spending money for the first time. Regular middle class and and even working class teenagers had spending money. Uh, So it became a time when teens could engage with consumer culture in ways that they hadn't been able to before. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Just after the show this morning, it's Cityscape with George Bodarkey. That's ahead at 7.30. But first, let's hear the rest of my conversation with Onika LeBennett. One thing that I thought was really interesting when I was uh, researching for this was the whole issue of sort of young girls growing up. Um, the West Indian girls being much more closely watched and how that related to the stuff that they liked. There's a double standard in uh, West Indian culture whereby boys are given a lot more freedom than adolescent girls, especially when they come to the United States and parents are worried about them being sort of involved in new dangers, foreign dangers that the parents uh, which the parents themselves did not grow up experiencing. So for the girls with whom I worked, their mothers were incredibly overprotective. Many of these girls uh, were not allowed to wear makeup, uh, were not allowed to have boyfriends. When I first arrived at the Flatbush YMCA in 1997 and I sat down with the 35 cheerleaders, I asked them to raise their hand if they had a boyfriend. No one raised their hand. I had a feeling that that couldn't be true. Here was a group of 35 girls between the ages of 12 and 17, and no one had a boyfriend. I found out that they had seen me talking to their mothers. They knew that I'd received their parents' permission to interview them, and they worried that if they said they had a boyfriend, I would go back and tell their mothers. As I spent more time with them and I observed them uh, over the course of a year and a half, I saw that some of them did have boyfriends, but that was not something they wanted their mothers to know because they were not allowed to. And what about the uh, the music that they listened to? I thought it was really interesting about, like, Foxy Brown and Little Kim. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in that first group of girls um, with whom I worked in, in the late 90s, there were a group of artists po- who were popular at the time, and, and we have the equivalent of these artists still popular today, who represented uh, for their parents a sort of um, wayward sexuality, let's say. Yeah. They knew that their parents interpreted uh, hip-hop artists like Foxy Brown and Lil' Kim as explicitly sexualized, wearing clothing that was inappropriate. These women sort of represented the sort of uh, contemporary video vixen of hip-hop, right? These are the sort of uh, female personae who are part of why contemporary hip-hop is seen as misogynist. My adolescent informants knew that their parents disapproved of artists like Lil' Kim and Foxy Brown. So when I asked them if they liked those artists, they would say no. Uh, And they would say things like, I don't like her. I don't like the way she dresses. She's not a good role model for me. Uh, I don't like um, what she's telling young girls. 
In separate occasions, however, I would hear a Foxy Brown song being played uh, either on a radio in the Y or in a car going by, and the girls would know all the words to the song. So it was clear that they listened to this music and that they enjoyed it, but they were also critical of it, and they knew when it was appropriate to distance themselves from those artists. And not surprisingly, they weren't just poisoned by that stuff. (laughs) Yes, that too. That too. I mean, it it was important for me to understand uh, them as critical agents, as people who have the ability to question the choices that they're offered and to say, you know, that is not something I accept or that doesn't reflect who I am. And that's not really that typical of research about teenagers. They're sort of thought of as empty vessels usually, right? Definitely. Uh, They're either thought of as empty vessels or as passive victims of consumer culture. There's a whole host of literature on adolescent girls, especially from a psychological uh, perspective, that argues that their self-identities are are detrimentally affected by consumer culture, that they are not allowed to sort of... um, experience uh, wholeness based on the choices offered in consumer culture. And what I find problematic about that literature is it's it's interpreting consumer culture or popular culture from an adult's perspective. If we look at an image like Foxy Brown or Lil' Kim as an adult, you would say that is an objectified definition of femininity. But you also assume, uh, if you read it that way, that you're smarter than an adolescent girl and you're able to see something that she won't. An adolescent girl is going to be unduly influenced by this objectified image. I found that the girls were critical of those images and they were just as savvy as I was in, in, in calling something sexist uh, when it was sexist. So they liked the stuff even though there were certain aspects of it that they were grossed out by, which I guess is, you know, not surprising. No, not surprising at all. It shouldn't be surprising that a teenager's reading of a movie or a song or an artist is different from that of an adult. But oftentimes, the research on this subject is written from that adult perspective. I'll ask you one more question, and I'll close with this. What surprised you about these girls? The first thing that surprised me was uh, what I mentioned earlier, that so many of them had more than one job. When I found out that China had two jobs and was looking for a job with health insurance, that really shocked me. I didn't think of a teenager as having to be concerned with that, about that. Uh, That was something that surprised me. The other thing that surprised me was how effortlessly they negotiated between West Indian identities and American identities. Uh, the fact that they that these were fluid identities for them, and that it was also a bi-directional process because their African American t- peers were also influenced by West Indian artists. And I found interesting examples of this where I went to a local eatery and one of the West Indian girls ordered in a West Indian accent, and then her African American friend did the same thing. She adopted a West Indian accent and ordered uh, in a West Indian accent. That was surprising to me. Uh, I was surprised to learn that this was a bi-directional process where African Americans and West Indians were influencing each other and borrowing from each other. Is there anything else that you want to add? I guess the, the, the last thing that I'll say is one of the most important things that I've learned from doing this research is that 
cross-culturally, youth have been viewed as sort of incomplete adults. Uh, They're not fully formed. There's something protective about that, but there's also something dangerous about it. What's dangerous about it is that we don't give them credit for being critical agents. And it became important for me to present research on adolescents that privileged their perspective. I try to abandon my own adult academic perspective and understand things from their perspective. And that's really what all anthropologists try to do. But it it becomes difficult when you're sort of trained to write in a certain way or think about things in a certain way. So it was really important for me to think of them as critical agents and then try to present uh, the meanings they made of consumer culture from their perspectives. Well, Onikola Bennett is a research director at the Bronx African American History Project, and she's an assistant professor of African and African American Studies at Fordham. Onika, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. From WFUV, this has been Fordham Conversations. If you have any comments or questions about today's show, you can email us at fordhamconversations at wfuv.org. We would, of course, and as always, love to hear from you. Fordham Conversations is available as a podcast at WFUV.org. It's also in our audio archive, which you can also find on our website. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful weekend. Take a bit in the history of this place and you'll find a, a, a steady stream of fairly odd occurrences. I believe this whole area is a center of mystical energy. The things gravitate towards it that, that, that you might not find elsewhere. Like vampires. Like zombies. Werewolves. Incubi. Succubi. Everything you've ever dreaded was under your bed but told yourself couldn't be by the light of day. They're all real. What? You like Santa away for the Time Life series? Uh, Yes. Did you get the free phone? Um, the calendar. Cool. This is WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org.